Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and I'd like to thank you for joining me on this podcast series where we share conversations with colleagues, exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice which I hope will be applicable for our medical practices. In the next two podcast episodes, we're talking with an expert hematologist on the subject of leukaemia. The leukaemias are malignant progressive diseases in which the bone marrow and other blood-forming organs produce increased numbers of immature or abnormal leukocytes. This is thought to occur after somatically acquired genetic mutations lead to dysregulation and clonal expansion of progenitor cells. While most leukemias involve white blood cells, occasionally other cells are the primary leukemic cells, such as red blood cells or platelets. As disease progression occurs, there is suppression of normal blood cell production, which leads to anemia and cytopenia with a host of attendant symptoms and clinical consequences. The division of leukemic transformation to myeloid or lymphocytic classification is understood based on the myeloid or lymphoid progenitor cell involved, recalling that a hemopoietic stem cell may mature down the myeloid series to red blood cells, platelets and white cells such as neutrophils, basophils and eosinophils, as well as dendritic cells, or down the lymphoid route to T and B cell lymphocytes and natural killer cells. There are 14 new diagnoses of leukaemia roughly per day in Australia, accounting for about 5,200 diagnoses annually and making up about 3.2% of all new cancer diagnoses per year. Leukaemia is responsible for over 2,100 deaths annually. Men are slightly more likely to be affected in a 60-40 split compared to women. And by the age of 85 years, one has a 1 in 50 chance of this diagnosis. With current treatment approaches, the overall five-year survival sits at about 64%, but this figure, of course, is influenced by the subtype of leukaemia diagnosed, with aggressive forms of leukaemia, such as AML, carrying a worse prognosis than a diagnosis such as CLL, which may run an indolent course for many years. Well, dividing adult leukaemias into acute and chronic classification is most helpful, and this podcast will approach the topic similarly over two episodes. The acute leukemias encompass acute myeloid leukemia, which is counting, which accounts for 30% of adult leukemias, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, and leukemias of ambiguous origin. The definition of acute myeloid leukemia, AML, is the presence of at least 20% myeloid blasts in the bone marrow. Erythroid leukemia, monoblastic and megakaryocytic leukemia are all considered myeloid leukemias. The median age of diagnosis is 64 years with a slight male preponderance. In most cases of AML, there may be no predisposing factor. However, exposure to DNA-damaging agents, including benzene, ionising radiation, cigarette smoking, and cytotoxic chemotherapy, known to increase the risk of disease in some individuals. Six categories of AML are described, and complex treatment protocols are applied. Adults diagnosed in their sixth decade have a five-year survival of 36.6%, dropping to 2.5% in adults 70 years or older. Now, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, ALL, describes a group of neoplasms derived from a lymphoid precursor. Bone marrow, blood, as well as nodal and extranodal sites may be involved. By convention, the term lymphoblastic lymphoma is used when the process is confined to a mass lesion with minimal involvement of blood and bone marrow. ALL accounts for 20% only of adult leukemias, but 80% of childhood leukemia. Down syndrome may predispose 
asthma exposure also to ionising radiation, pesticides and viruses such as Epstein-Barr and HIV. B phenotype, ALL, accounts for 75% of adult cases, with T phenotype the remainder. With BALL, several genetic subtypes are described, including the 922 translocation, the so-called Philadelphia chromosome, seen in about 30% of ALL patients, 12 to 21 genetic translocations and rearrangements of the MLL gene, or alteration in chromosome number, that's diploidy, are also seen. So 50 to 70% of TALL also have abnormal carrier type. Well, the prognosis of adult ALL is poor, with survival estimated at 30 to 40% for those below 60 years and 95% for those above 70. CAR T-cell therapies have the potential to enhance therapeutic outcome. Well, this is a vast subject, another vast subject, and it was a real honour to invite Professor Jake Short to the podcast. Jake is the Head of Hematology Research at the School of Clinical Sciences and Clinical Lead at Monash Hematology for Myeloid Leukaemia, Myelodysplasia and T-cell lymphoma. He's Principal Investigator on a range of clinical trials for T-cell lymphoma and myeloid malignancies conducted through the Monash Hematology Clinical Trials Unit. Professor Short is the recipient of a Medical Research Future Fund Career Development Fellowship. His work in the School of Clinical Sciences is focused on strategies incorporating epigenetic drugs with immunotherapy in hematological cancers, particularly lymphoma and multiple myeloma. And Jake heads the Blood Cancer Therapeutics Laboratory uh, within the Monash Health Translational Precinct. Somehow he also finds the time to be chair of the Laboratory Sciences Working Party of the Australasian Leukemia and Lymphoma Group. And he's the deputy chair of the Scientific Advisory Committee. So it was a real privilege to welcome Jake Short to the podcast. Please join us. So, Professor Jake Short, thank you for joining me on Everyday Medicine. It's a great privilege to have you here uh, talking about this very difficult, I think, and complex subject of leukaemia, but a very, very important one because leukaemia is something that affects, uh, I understand, about uh, 5,200 people per year in Australia, and there's about 14 new diagnoses per day. And I have read some reports that we're going to be seeing more leukaemia uh, and more uh, blood cancers just generally uh, in Australia. So, it's very, very uh, a generous of you to make your time available to discuss this. And uh, before we start, Jake, can I ask you to just just give us a little bit of an introduction into your journey into hematology? What drew you into this field of medicine? Yeah, th- thanks, Luke. It's lovely to be invited to participate, and uh, it is an area that's close to my heart. And as you mentioned, um, becoming more common and um, and increasingly complicated. Uh, I myself. A clinical hematologist and uh, pathologist, and I, I mix my time between uh, research, both in the laboratory and and seeing patients in the clinic. Um, I've always been interested in in medicine. It's something that I wanted to do from school age. I guess my dad was a GP, so I had a bit of exposure to it early on, and and I, I really was attracted to the science in medicine and hematology is a great overlapping specialty that allows you to bring in the science of some of the sophisticated laboratory technologies and and diagnostics but also I think we're quite lucky in hematology because it's a disease 
that's readily accessible. You know, you get leukemia in a blood sample, but our understanding of the the processes that are underpinning a lot of the blood cancers is, is advanced, which means the the therapeutics in the area are a, a little bit perhaps ahead of some of the other the other cancers. So it's an exciting area to be in from a scientific perspective. And I think the my early experience with hematology as a as a resident um, at the Alfred Hospital in the early 2000s, what was impressed in me is how acutely and critically unwell patients can be when they're diagnosed, but you can fix them and they can get better and 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 in, in some course cases increasingly cured. So it's it's really rewarding to be able to help people in a significant crisis, but also know that you've got the tools to to hopefully sort it out and, and get them better. Um, uh, and um, and I think increasingly the field is is allowing us to do that. It, d- it does seem to me like the research has just really moved ahead in great bounds and th- we're going to be touching on some of the therapies uh, for leukemia coming up, but there's just a huge number of treatments that uh, I think a lot of us in primary care are, are a little bit confused about and so it's really nice to have you here guiding us through this. Can you give us a bit of an overall feel for uh, acute and chronic leukemias? Then we might focus initially the initial part of this on acute, but t- t- just take us through this. Yeah, well, I think the difficulty is, and the reason it seems so complicated, is although we lump acute leukemias and chronic leukemias into two baskets, myeloid and lymphoid, uh, essentially, the, as we get a more sophisticated understanding a, a, around the, the diseases, you can slice and dice that into dozens, if not potentially hundreds, of individual entities. But uh, at the highest level, uh, acute leukemia has a short natural history, typically presents in an aggressive fashion associated with bone marrow failure or acute organ dysfunction, and is a medical emergency that, in the absence of effective supportive care and treatment, would be lethal within uh, days to weeks, and in some cases, hours. Chronic leukemia, on the other hand, um, is typically picked up incidentally in an asymptomatic patient um, has a very long natural history, um, may not need treatment for a number of years, if at all, um, and um, has a natural history that's measured in months to years rather than days to months. In both cases, there are exceptions to the rule. Uh, there are patients with chronic leukemias that can present with a time-critical complication, um, and there are patients with acute leukemias that sort of grumble along a, li- a little bit before they're diagnosed. But I think that's a useful way of separating the two. And then the other way that they're separated broadly is whether the cells, that are the disease cells, have arisen from the, the myeloid system or the, the cells of the bone marrow, or uh, in which case we call them myeloid leukemias, or the lymphoid system, uh, or the lymphocytes, in which case we call them lymphoid leukemias, um, some of that's historical. I mean, down the microscope and, and with some of the tests we use, these cells look differently, but biologically they behave differently and so that has different therapeutic implications. So the myeloid series are the cells that produce, they lead to red cells and neutrophils, basically. Red cells, white cells, cells, cells platelets. Yeah. Yeah. Versus the TMB lymphocyte series, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for that introduction. T- tell us a bit about the acute leukemias. So acute leukemias, again, do divide into acute myeloid and acute lymphoblastic um, leukemias. 
uh, typically someone presenting with acute leukemia uh, may have one of several problems. Uh, the, the, the underlying problem essentially is bone marrow failure. Uh, if you've got an excess of leukemia cells in your bone marrow, the normal bone marrow function becomes suppressed and people without normal bone marrow function become anemic, prone to bleeding because of low platelets, uh, and they're critically immunosuppressed, particularly if they're neutropenic. Um, the, the second complication of uh, leukemia can be that you present with a very high white cell count. This, this, this can happen in chronic leukemias as well. If you've got a high white cell count, that can cause complications in its own right, including sort of blocking up blood vessels in the, in, in the lungs and causing respiratory distress or causing problems with mentition and, and, and neurological um, uh, disturbances. And then there are the sort of metabolic consequences of leukemia. If you think of acute leukemia as a very highly proliferative disease, perhaps one of the most proliferative uh, cancers, the cells have a turnover rate because there's some natural attrition as well that puts a stress on your physiology. So electrolyte disturbances, renal impairment, we call this uh, tumor lysis um, syndrome. And then some of the leukemias, although they're called leukemias and we think of them as predominantly being in the blood or the bone marrow, particularly the ALLs, the acute lymphoblastic leukemias, can present a bit more like a, a lymphoma with a lump or a mass. And if that mass is in a critical position, for example, T acute lymphoblastic leukemia can typically present with a mediastinal mass that can cause issues with the with with respiratory compromise or, or you know the, the hemodynamics and the uh, and the, the great vessels. So in all cases, really acute leukemia is and should be viewed as a medical emergency. So if you're concerned that your patient has acute leukemia, um, urgent referral even after hours, I think is, is, the, is the bottom line with, with, with few exceptions. Um, it's not the sort of thing that can wait even a couple of weeks for an outpatient clinic Generally, it's a matter of trusting on the telephone, urgent referral to emergency. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and hopefully a, a, a direct person you can call and talk to there and make sure the patient's being followed through. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. it's so important. When you're looking at a blood film in primary care, let's say it's ALL or AML, I'm not really sure, but how, how do you choose, how do you sort of determine their? by reviewing the blood count, that it's going to be ALL or AML. That's probably a very basic yeah. question, But is it very obvious? Uh, so in some cases it can be. Bearing in mind that there's a number of different forms of AML and ALL, some of them have very peculiar and typical presentations down the microscope that, that you can pick, yeah. which we could, we could come back to. But the diagnosis of acute leukaemia may be relatively obvious in someone who's got full, you know, low normal blood counts, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia, yeah. anemia, and an excess of abnormal cells that down the microscope look like bone marrow blasts, meaning they're large, yes. a mature appearance, they're, 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 they're not normal, and, and it's quite obvious to the trained eye that that's the case, that you can say someone's got acute leukemia. Is that going to be the AML, that, that sort of picture? Because she, so, yeah. AML or ALL. In fact, they're not often, they, they can be indistinguishable down the microscope, which is why the, right. the next level diagnostics in the bone marrow biopsy are required. So, so all the cell lines can get wiped out in both of those, ALL and AML. So, so if you're seeing someone who's anemic or thrombocytopenic, 
you're not thinking, oh, that's going to be myeloid. It's probably going to be AML. You can't, you couldn't make that call. Not, not with any great distinction, although maybe with the ALL you do get a little bit more sparing of the of, of the bone marrow right. production in some cases. But the, 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 the caveat to what I've described and perhaps something to be aware of in primary care is some of the most imminently dangerous acute leukemias can present essentially with pancytopenia and not really much in the way of leukemic disease circulating. So the unwell patient with very low blood counts and no excess of white cells in the blood can actually have a bone marrow full of leukemia and be critically unwell. I guess it's a little bit harder to, 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 to call on the spot because there are other reasons you can have low blood counts, whether that's a, you know, a B vitamin deficiency or the effects of a drug or a toxin. Um, but leukemia doesn't necessarily present with a, with a high abnormal white cell count. Right. Okay. So generally, these patients are going to be uh, probably will receive a phone call from the haematology department, but not always. Yeah. And we should observe or recognise the this issue and urgent referral. And then the bone marrow biopsy, of course, is going to happen in a tertiary centre uh, in general. Where do you take it as a as a sort of specialist clinician? How do you advance the diagnosis? So I, I guess if it's a younger person, we're thinking it's more likely to be ALL than AML, but that's not always the case either, is it? Um, yeah, so, uh, I mean, ALL has a, a biphasic or, or, or um, paediatric predominance, is one yeah. of the most common yeah. acute paediatric malignancies. So, yes, if you're diagnosing acute leukemia in someone under 10, it's much more likely to be ALL than AML, but they sort of cross over then in an adulthood, and as you, as you age, AML becomes much more, more predominant. So you can't use age per se to really distinguish um, the presentations. Um, the diagnostic process almost always, if, you, if you're planning to treat um, with restorative or curative intent, would include a bone marrow biopsy. And that allows us to look at the abnormal cell population more precisely uh, with sort of next level diagnostics over and above what we can do down the microscope. Um, and that's becoming much more important uh, in this therapeutic era where we have targeted agents that can pick off particular aspects of disease biology. So we, we, we're increasingly using more precise tools to not just distinguish AML from ALL, but which type of ALL, which subtype of AML it is, and, and what are the, the mutations and the chromosomal abnormalities that are driving that particular disease in that individual so we can potentially tailor the best therapy for them. Can you give me a sense of those results, those sort of started genetic results, how that would help you determine what sort of choice of therapy you might be led to? So typically with acute leukemia, because it is a medical emergency, you don't get a lot of time to establish what your initial therapy might be. And one of the paradoxes, if you like, of a malignancy that progresses so rapidly is at least that diagnosis is exquisitely sensitive to chemotherapy. So getting someone with acute myeloid or lymphoblastic leukemia into remission with the tools that we've had for a number of years, that being conventional chemotherapy and steroids, is actually readily achievable in the majority of, of patients. And so the initial therapy would typically be some form of chemotherapy, chemotherapy with steroids for, for ALL, 
um, while you're getting some of this additional information together. Um, it's becoming more nuanced now because we're adding targeted agents, non-chemotherapy agents onto that treatment schema. And that can happen very early, um, in some cases between day one and day eight of, of the treatment course that you've embarked on. So we, we probably get an idea with, with the acute leukemias of the chromosomes within 48 hours. Um, the cytogenetic service appreciates the acuity of the problem. We get that information. That's very much prognostic as well as therapeutic. The chromosomal abnormalities allow us to project longer-term outcomes and the chances that conventional chemotherapy, for example, might cure someone, um, which in the longer-term treatment paradigm informs decisions for risk stratified management and in particular pushing people towards uh, bone marrow transplants if we don't think chemotherapy or targeted agents are going to be curative. Uh, and then over and above the, the chromosomes, we do look for the presence of specific mutations that we know occur in our current fashion in the particular leukemias, which have both prognostic implications, but there are also drugs that we can bring in to target that particular mutation in a, in a particular patient, um, whether that be an approved dr drug, and fortunately there are more and more coming through or as part of a, a clinical trial. And the clinical trial activity in the area is really growing exponentially. Can you give some names of the sorts of targeted therapies we, we might come across in letters sent back to us from hematologists? So uh, kinase inhibitors would yes. be the first class to think about. Kinases are proteins in the cell that have a signaling role, um, and by virtue of the way that they, they function as a, a signaling protein within the cell, they're actually quite easily easy to drug. So, for example, in acute myeloid leukemia, there's a recurrently mutated or activated kinase called FLT3. Um, FLT3 mutations give a poorer overall prognosis for acute leukemia, acute myeloid leukemia. But now we have a drug called Mitostorin on the PBS that we can use for FLT3 mutated disease in combination with chemotherapy, and that improves the overall survival rate. Kinase inhibitors are probably the, the biggest class of um, targeted agents across all cancer streams because they've been around for the longest and they're best understood. Um, the, the, the more recent developments probably relate, they're targeted agents, but they're, they're not targeted at a particular mutation. They're targeted uh, at cancer cell biology. By that, I mean cancer cells are avoiding programmed cell death, cell suicide, something we call apoptosis. And we've got drugs that can tell them to commit suicide or enter apoptosis now. And, and the threshold for a cancer cell to do that is different from your, your normal cells. So one of, one of the revolutions we're seeing at the moment is the ability to treat older patients, patients over the age of 70, you know, into their 80s, who wouldn't be fit for intensive chemotherapy like we give to the younger patients with curative intent, but we can give combinations of low-intensity chemotherapy uh, with these uh, agents that activate apoptosis or cell suicide. And the drug that became available on the PBS recently is called Venetoclax. Venetoclax is now available for all patients in frontline therapy in combination with low-dose chemotherapy. Um, and, is, uh, and in that context, is very 
active at, induce, at, at inducing remissions, but doesn't have the sort of intensity and toxicity of the chemotherapy that we've traditionally used. And, and the venetoclax story is very interesting because the, the biology of that drug and its target is a, is a, is a Melbourne or, or Australian success story. It was developed by scientists at the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute and subsequently the initial trials, which were performed in chronic lymphocytic leukaemia, uh, were all through that, the Parkville uh, campus. And a lot of the, 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 the development of venetoclax has, has occurred in, um, in Melbourne and Australia. Um, so kinase inhibitors, venetoclax, a, a drug that activates apoptosis. And the other big paradigm shift that we're seeing in cancer medicine, and it's true in the leukemia clinic, is immuno-oncology agents. So agents that don't necessarily target the tumor directly, but manipulate the tumor or the host immune system in a way that it can re-engage uh, and help eradicate the tumor. Um, in the acute leukemia clinic, um, that's been um, uh, in the, uh, less. It's it's been slower in development than some of the other disease areas, but it has now also become standard of care. So, for example, in ALL, acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, we have a a drug called blinitumumab. Um, now, blinitumumab is a bit like an antibody, like our immune system would produce, but it's been engineered to bind two things at the same time. Uh, one thing is the the B cell antigen or the marker on the, the, the leukemia. The other thing is a T cell. So blinitumumab can bring your normal T cells into, guide them into the, the leukemia cells and allow your T cells to kill leukemia cells. It's called a bite therapy or a bispecific. Um, and um, all, all of these drugs have got their own peculiarities, but they all fundamentally work in a different way from the, the chemotherapies that, that we've that we've used in the past. So they've got different toxicity profiles, but they're more easily used in people who perhaps can't tolerate intensive treatments. It's an incredible new horizon, isn't it, these therapies? Uh, they're just, it's, it, it, they are all born out of a deep understanding of cell biology. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's quite phenomenal. We were talking about that CAR T cell therapy yeah, you know, just before we started recording, and that's a different sort of therapy again. Can you can you briefly, you know, give us an introduction into that? I know it's not necessarily applicable to all cases that we're discussing here, but yeah. So a, a CAR T cell, if you like, is is a bit of a, a it pushes the theme of the the bite technology that I just described. Yes, with a bite, you give someone an infusion of a, an engineered protein that draws their T cells into a cancer cell or leukemia cell to kill them. With CAR-T therapy, you take the patient's healthy T-cells or T-lymphocytes out of the body and you genetically engineer them so that then they can recognize the leukemia cells. They typically recognize the same sorts of surface markers that the bites or the traditional antibodies do. Um, those cells are then expanded in a laboratory, prepared um, into a, a suspension that can be reinfused back into the patient, goes back into the patient, the T cells find the, the tumors that are expressing um, the markers they've been engineered to, to recognize uh, and kill them. So CAR T therapy is approved and available for 
B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia uh, in Australia um, and is more broadly applicable uh, that technology across a range of B-cell lymphomas outside of the leukemia clinic and CAR-Ts being developed to, to target different cancers, different forms of leukemia um, uh, uh, rapidly progressing through clinical trials. It's a lot harder to deploy a CAR-T for myeloid disease because we don't have good surface markers on myeloid cancer cells that distinguish from normal cells. So that, so for CAR-T therapies to work, there needs to be a marker on the cell that, that, that separates the cancer cell from normal cells, or if it doesn't, the normal cells that it would be targeted by the CAR-T cells are, are dispensable. Right. Nice. So it has to be sort of a unique identifier on the cell. Yes. Uh, I just think it's amazing how people work these things out. It's absolutely phenomenal. With these therapies, Jake, and thank you for, for running through those. That was very, very clear and helpful. Have we seen a reduction in the need for transplantation for allergenic bone marrow transplants? Is, have the therapies sort of changed that end of the, the more serious end of the, the spectrum as well? So, yeah, I think, I think the answer is yes and no because it really depends on the disease and ultimately allogeneic stem cell transplant is the best curative modality for a number of these problems. Allogeneic tra- stem cell transplant means you get your bone marrow, your immune system replaced by somebody else's. The immune system that's put in is similar enough to your, to your own body that it doesn't attack it, well, that's the idea, um, but it can recognise the leukemia that you have, and, and so it's an immunological treatment as well. The difficulty with allogeneic transplant is it's a toxic procedure that in itself has a mortality rate. There are complications, and so it, 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 it really is reserved for patients who are young enough and fit enough to tolerate it, but also with diseases that we don't think conventional or novel agents are likely to cure. But if I could go back to your original question, I think there's a, the, the, the best disease to, to illustrate this point is chronic myeloid leukemia, which we haven't talked about yet. But it really is the, the poster child, if you like, for, for what science can allow us to develop in terms of targeted therapies. Thank you for joining me in the conversation today with Jake Short. It was a real privilege to have him along talking about acute leukemia. I really would like you to join me next week when we will tackle the subject of chronic leukemias with him. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at geohealth.com.au. Thank you.